Our children can head back and be with our Transformation Station team this morning. And uh, while they head back, you can open up your Bibles to the first page. We'll be in Genesis chapter 1 this morning. And uh, let me just say as you turn there, um, one, I, I really count it uh, just an unbelievable privilege to serve as one of the pastors of this church. So if you're new to Redemption Hill, I'd love to have the opportunity to meet you this morning. We actually have a newcomer's reception after the service. Uh, it'll be brief, 10, 15 minutes just for you to connect with some new people. So if you're new and didn't know about that, uh, please make plans just to hit, hang around for a few minutes after the service. Um, but, but it's been a, a really great start to the new year. If you were with us, uh, even part of the last four weeks, you know that uh, we went through what we called our G-series, looking at the character of God, the, the, the nature and work of God. God is, uh, he's, he's great, he's glorious, he's good, and he's gracious. So uh, now this week we have the opportunity to start a new sermon series looking at uh, who Christ is as we see him unfolded throughout the Old Testament, specifically these first five books of the Bible we know as the law or the Pentateuch. So uh, as we dive in, as we start a new sermon series, I figure it's a really good opportunity just to ask you, how do you know if you've listened to a good sermon? Have you ever asked this question? I mean, it's, it's kind of important, for one, because you're about to listen to a sermon, all right? But uh, number two, uh, because uh, there are a lot of bad preaching out there. There's a lot of false teaching out there. So we want to kind of understand and know, hey, is this like really good and, and, and worthwhile uh, preaching to listen to? Or is this something that, you know, is really for the birds and I can pass over that and find some, some good stuff, you know? So, um, so, so one ingredient above all the rest is unfolded for us in a story from Charles Spurgeon, the great uh, England preacher in uh, the 19th century. So Spurgeon tells a story about a young preacher who had the opportunity to, to preach in front of this really distinguished, very popular preacher in his day. And so the story goes that naturally this young man was eager to go and approach this pastor to to find out what he thought of his sermon, obviously looking for a little confirmation and approval from this wise and experienced pastor. And so as soon as the service ended, he went and he found this preacher and he, he asked him, uh, sir, what did you think of my sermon? To which the wise and experienced pastor said, it was really not a good sermon at all. Now, let me just sidebar. If, if that's how you feel about my sermon this morning, please don't let me know afterwards, okay? Just do, do, me, that, do me that favor. Uh, but anyway, so you can imagine this young man dejected after what he hears. He says, well, well, what was wrong? Was my explanation not clear of the passage? And the old pastor says, you know, no, it was very good. And so the young man's kind of searching, well, was it my metaphors or my argumentation that didn't measure up? And he said, no, actually, that was quite good as well. And so uh, the young man is, is just kind of uh, puzzled by this response. And he says, well, well, what was the problem with my sermon? To which the wise and experienced pastor says, there was no Christ in your sermon. So the young man retorts. He says, well, well, there was no Christ in the text, sir. Uh, we're just supposed to preach the text as it is. This is what I've been taught. And, and the old preacher says, well, well, young man, don't you know that in England, every village in every town, every hamlet has a road that leads to London and so every text in the Bible has a road that leads to Christ. He said, we have to hear of Christ if there is something to be savored in the message, no matter what text you may be preaching. And so that's our aim over the next 12 weeks. We're going to dive into the Old Testament, and we're going to look at the, the Old Testament as it stands, as it is, and understand what's happening there in Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. But we're also going to see how there is a thread running through the whole of the Bible that is pointing us at every turn to the person and work of 
Jesus Christ. And so uh, this is exactly what Jesus taught his disciples in the Gospels. Okay, you remember from our Luke series, we saw this at the very last chapter. Jesus was on the road uh, of Emmaus to Emmaus, and, and he comes up with a couple of disciples, and he says, you know, why, why didn't you expect to, to, to see the, the Messiah suffering and then rising again? Because this is what all Scripture said. Luke 24, verses 25 through 27 says this. And he said to them, O foolish one and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning, look at this, beginning with Moses. That's an allusion to the first five books of the Bible. Beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. And then in John 5, he's speaking to the Pharisees, and the Pharisees loved to to tout how that they were the people of Abraham, the the true Israel. And and so they were all connected with Moses. They kept Moses' law. So what does Jesus say to them? He says, look, uh, in, in John 5, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. For if you believed Moses you would believe me, for he wrote of me. And so let's be really clear on what we're after here. The Old Testament, properly understood, is Christian scripture, all right? So I don't know where you are kind of in your Bible reading plan for the year, you know, but I know sometimes it's hard to see the relevance of the Old Testament if we haven't been taught to understand this grand narrative of the Bible and how all of the little parts of those 39 books fit into the whole of the 66 books of the Bible. And yet that's exactly what we're going to see over the next 12 weeks. And I'm very, very excited about it. So I hope you are as well. And to get us started, uh, as I shared, we'll be starting where the Bible begins in the first page, Genesis chapter 1. Now, hopefully you're familiar with these first verses in Genesis 1. We see in verse 1 these famous words, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Okay, so I believe that. Okay, I really believe that. I believe that God created everything that is out of nothing, all right? That's called creation ex nihilo, creation out of nothing. There is a God who is eternal and everlasting, and before there was anything that we can see in our world, there was God, and God spoke the world into existence. So you have creator God and everything else, including us, creation. Now, what does it tell us in Genesis 1 that God created? We don't have time to read the whole chapter, so let me break it down for us. Day one, God creates light. He says, let there be light, and behold, there was light, and God saw that it was good. Then on day two, he creates the heavens. Day three, dry land, oceans, and plants. Day four, sun, moon, stars. Day five, birds and fish. And then before God rested from his work on the seventh day, he created animals on day six and the crown of his creation, people. And when God stepped back and he looked on all that he had made, he said, behold, it is very good. So I want to zoom in on verses 26 through 31 this morning as I want us to really understand a doctrine of man, who we are in light of who God is and the the huge, massive implications it holds for our everyday lives as we jump in. So follow along with me as I read verse 26 and following. He says this, then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth, and every tree with its seed and its fruit. 
You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. So I want to give you three truths as we journey through, actually, the first three chapters of the Bible. And the first truth I want to give you this morning is this. God created man in his image to reflect and represent his glory. Okay, it is, it is, I believe, impossible to overstate the importance of the first three chapters of the Bible, because it's here that we find this, this most important and foundational truth about humanity that we as people are made in the very image of God. The language we find here in Genesis 1, uh, verses 26 and 27, where he says that we're made in his image, we're made in the likeness of God, it refers to how that we are made uh, as similar to God, but not identical to God, okay? So, so we looked at this G series the last four weeks. We said God is great, God is glorious, God is gracious, God is good, and so God is, is other than us. He is holy, completely holy, not like us, but we are like him. Okay, you got that? All right, so, so, so God, is, God is, we can't just look at man and say, okay, this is what God is like. Okay, because God is so much greater and higher than we are, and yet we are made in his image to reflect who he is. So let's break this down uh, just a little bit. Okay, number one, man was made to reflect who God is, all right? Do you ever look in the mirror in the morning as, as a mirror reflects uh, what, what is, it beholds? Uh, so man uh, reflects who God is. And this is our highest privilege and responsibility as people, to reflect, to display something that is true of God. Now, you might be asking, well, then, how is it that we reflect who God is? What, what, is, what, is, what is this privilege that we carry? Well, uh, let me just give you a few. This isn't comprehensive, but just a few major ways we reflect the image of God. Uh, number one, we're rational beings, okay? So we have the ability to think, to know, to synthesize loads of information in a way that no other creature on the planet has the capacity to do because we're made in the image of a rational God. Number two, we are relational beings, okay? Not just rational, but relational. And this is because God is a relational God. God is, in fact, the triune God. He has existed from all eternity as one God who exists in three persons. So from, from all eternity, Father, Son, Spirit have always existed in this perfect, harmonious relationship. And we even get a hint of this in verse 28, where God says, let us make man in our image after our likeness. So there's a hint of the Trinity as early as the very first verses of the Bible. And because God is a relational God, he has made us for relationship. This is why uh, nobody really wants to kind of go and just hang out by themselves indefinitely without going a little crazy in, in our minds, right? I mean, no one's kind of signing up for that. It's because God has made us gregarious creatures. We, we long for relationship. This is why we have community groups at Redemption Hill so we can connect with one another through the week more than just on Sundays. But not only that, rational, relational, and then finally moral. Okay, God has made us moral beings. We have an innate sense of right and wrong because God has created us with this thing called a conscience that helps us differentiate between what is morally right and morally pure and morally wrong or morally impure. And this is because God is a moral being and God is good and God always does what is good. So these are a few of the ways that God has made us to reflect him. And, and, and don't miss this, we are to be a reflection. So in all that we do, God has made us to show who he is. 
So if God is good, we are to be good in what we do. If God is kind, and he is, then we should be kind in all we do. If God is faithful in all he does, then we should be faithful in all we do. And we can just keep going on and on and on, loving, forgiving, merciful, gracious. We are to reflect the character of God, the work of God. So man was created to reflect who God is. Man was also created to represent who God is. We see in these verses how God delegated great responsibility and authority to Adam and Eve. They were given the the purpose of carrying out God's desires on the earth. He gave them dominion over all of his created world. And so we see even in chapter one, I love this, how that there is a God who creates and works And we, as those being made in his image, are made actually to work, all right? So here is now a theology for your your, your nine to five or your your, your 12 to eight or whatever shift you work. There, There is reason for why we're made to work, why we desire to work and be productive in life is because we're made in the image of God who works, Now, there's also rationale for why we're frustrated in our work and why it's a real pain sometimes, and that's... Uh, another sermon for another year. In fact, we preached this whole deal last year, uh, about a year ago with our, our Work Reimagined series. So you can go online and, and download that. Um, but, but we see how we're made to work. We're, we're like ambassadors going to a foreign nation. We're to represent our maker in all times, in all ways. So let me just give you one huge implication of our being made in the image and likeness of God. We as humanity have dignity and worth and therefore we should love and respect all people because all people are made in the image of God. Do you see that? So, so just, just look around for a moment and every person that you see and, and then even when you step out of this this. Uh, Boys and Girls Club, this church service today, and you're, you're in Medford and, and in the real world through, the, through your week and uh, at work, you're seeing people who are made in the very image of God. So this is why it is, it is an offense to God to insult or demean any person made in his image. The Proverbs talk about this. Whoever insults or oppresses the poor insults his maker. And we can just run down the list. The the poor, the oppressed, the unborn. Every ethnicity, every nation, God cares about every single person on the planet because every single person on the planet is made in his image. So this is why we are a church for all people. And this now changes the way we relate to one another in hopefully every single circumstance. You got it? I mean, think about this. How do you view your boss, your roommate, your neighbor? How do you see these people? Are these people that just kind of get on your nerves that you just kind of want to, you know, remove, just kind of sweep out of the presence of your life? Or are you viewing that that boss, neighbor, roommate as someone who is made in the image of God, who has dignity and worth, who, who deserves to be respected and loved simply because they bear the image of God and to assault, insult them in any way is to give affront to your maker. What about, what about sex? What about how we relate to the opposite sex? There's such a penchant in our culture, such a temptation to view the opposite sex as nothing more than a physical object that exists to fulfill our carnal gratification. But what happens when we start viewing that that woman or that man on a television screen or, or, or a cell phone screen is someone made in the very image of God. What happens when we start viewing ourselves as someone made in the image of God? I mean, this is, this is where our self-worth 
and our self-confidence flows from, not because there's something you know, incredibly novel about any of us or we can accomplish the greatest things in life or we're the most beautiful people in the world, okay? We talked about this a couple weeks ago, but it's because God has made us and we have all the, the value and worth that we could ever want because God cares about us. Wayne Grudem says this, If we are truly important to God for all eternity, then what greater measure of importance or significance could we want? I hope that you are finding your importance and your significance as someone who is made in the very image of God. The first three chapters of the Bible capture the overarching story of Scripture. We have God's people, Adam and Eve, dwelling in God's place, the garden, as we're about to see. They're living under God's rule, experiencing, consequently, God's blessing. This is a framework. God's people in God's place, under God's rule, experiencing God's blessing. That's a framework for understanding the whole of Scripture. And so I want to trace this in light of the image of God throughout so that we can kind of understand this this framework, okay? Uh, People call this the meta-narrative of Scripture, okay? It's the the story over all of the other stories, okay? You got that? So what do we see? We find creation. God made man in his image to reflect and represent his glory. And you would think this would have greatly encouraged Adam, and I'm sure it did. And you would think that at all cost, Adam would do whatever he could have to honor this God who made him. But as we're about to see, he did not. And neither have we. Look in chapter 2, starting in verse 15. It says, The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. So out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened And they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin cloths. So what we see now in the Genesis story, the Genesis account, is that though God created man in his image, man has radically failed to 
reflect his glory. Do you see this? The story tells us how though Adam and Eve were, were made to reflect who God is and glorify him in all of their actions, they failed to keep God's commands and they were failed to reflect his glory. We should note how Satan works here. Satan is called by Jesus the father of lies. And so he works his deceptive schemes to deceive Adam and Eve here in the garden. And we need to pay careful attention because this is how he deceives us as well. His primary objective was to entice them to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. This tree was strictly forbidden by God, as we read. And so how does, how does Satan deceive Adam and Eve? Well, first, we see that he deceives them by undermining God's command and twisting God's word. He says to them in the, the first verse of chapter uh, 3, did God really say? He wants to undermine the command. He wants to twist what God says, which, oh, by the way, is why we just try to open the Bible on Sundays and just work our way through exactly what Scripture says. Okay, so if you, if you hear of a preacher who even might have a Bible open, but they're not saying what it says, then you just need to move on and find someone who actually does. So he first deceives them by undermining God's command, twisting his word. Second, he deceives them by encouraging them to doubt God's goodness. In other words, you know God's really withholding something from you that would be good for you, that, that, that would really benefit you, and this is how we see temptation around us. Man, if I had that, it would satisfy me. It would fulfill me. God is holding out on me. But we know that God is good. He withholds nothing good from his children. That's why we need to look nowhere else besides to who God is and what he has provided for our lives. And then number three, he also deceived them by look, making evil look so appealing to their senses and desires. So this is the fruit. It looked, it looked good. It was enticing. And it was to be desired. And, and why was that? It's because Adam and Eve started to be tempted because they wanted to sit in the seat of God. Only God has the knowledge of good and evil, and so they wanted to take his spot on the throne. They wanted to have the knowledge that God had. And so they doubted his goodness. They ate of the fruit, and immediately consequences come into their lives. Now, we would hope that in these moments, after Adam and Eve sinned, they would take some ownership, some responsibility for their sin, but this, in fact, is not what happens. Look in verse 8. The narrative goes on, and it says that they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to man, and he said, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. And so after reading the story, we would expect God to confront Adam like a wise parent. Okay, so let me bust some just false theology here. There is, there is no uh, lack of knowledge on God's part of what happened in the garden, okay? Like a wise parent who knows what's going on in the other room or who's looking outside of the window to his kids who are committing error and wrong, God comes and confronts them with a question to give them the opportunity to tell the truth, okay? But, but that's not what happens here. We would think God says, hey, did you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and you, we would expect Adam to say, yes, I did, God. But that's not what happens. 
And this, once again, is what we're prone to do in our life. Rather than taking ownership for our sin, we shift the blame to other people, right? So what does Adam say? In verse 11, he starts and he says to God, the woman. I mean, God, don't, don't look at me. It's the woman's fault. Notice how God goes, goes after the man here. Okay, so Adam's created first. God's holding him more responsible, okay? And so, so Adam tries to shift the blame. Hey, it's, it's the woman. It's her fault. She was deceived, and then I followed her. Let me just speak to the men for a moment, okay? Men, could we, could we take a little more ownership of our sin? That's what men do, by the way. Men created in the image of God. Even though we're not perfect, we own up when we fail. So let me just say this. If your home is in disrepair, own it. If your marriage isn't what it should be, own it. If your spiritual life is slack, own it. If your wife's spiritual life is not what it should be, you own it. And I need to own it. We need to own it the responsibility that God has given to us. And when we fail, we need to look not around, but we need to look in the mirror and own the responsibility for our sin. This is not what Adam does. He shifts the blame first to Eve. And if that wasn't bad enough, he goes on to say what? In verse 11, the woman whom you gave me. So now it's not only he's, he's shifting the blame on Eve, but now he's looking at God and he's saying, God, you gave me this woman. And this is, again, what we do. We, we commit evil acts. We reap the, the consequences of those acts, and then we blame God for the consequences that we reap. It's absolutely ridiculous, backwards, and evil. Ecclesiastes 7.29 has it right. See, this alone I found that God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. And these devious schemes that we enter into have severe and tragic consequences. We see in the garden, there's a sense of personal shame to Adam and Eve. They didn't realize their nakedness, but now they're covering themselves up. They're ashamed of themselves because now they have the presence of sin in their life. Not only that, there are cosmic consequences to the, the first sin that was committed, this treason against God. And we're going to look at that in just a moment. But then the, the worst part of it all is that the brokenness that their sin led them to carried the consequence of breaking their fellowship with God to where verses 23 to 24 will tell us that they were banished from the presence of God and kicked out of the Garden of Eden. This story is known as the fall in Scripture. And what does this mean for us? Well, it, it means because Adam was our representative, the first man. Now we have inherited a guilty nature and a sinful nature that has been passed down to us. So this is why our statement of faith, uh, the, the fifth article says this, the fall of man. God originally created man in his own image and free from sin. But through the temptation of Satan, Adam transgressed the command of God and fell from his original holiness and righteousness, whereby his descendants, that's us, inherit a nature corrupt and wholly opposed to God and his law. As a result, they are under condemnation, and as soon as they are capable of moral action, become actual transgressors. Now, we have a depraved nature that is comprehensively depraved. So let me explain what I'm talking about. We said we are those made in the image of God. We're rational beings. We're relational beings. We're moral beings, right? Well, our, 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 our rational capacities are all jacked up now. We don't see things clearly. There's so much misunderstanding and deceit that plagues our lives. We don't add it all up. We don't have the right perspective. We, in the language of Romans 1, suppress the truth 
And so we don't have God's clear perspective on the world because of our sin. Number two, we are relationally a mess. I mean, does, does anyone have perfect relationships here in the room today? Like anybody? Okay. So, so now we're making further arguments for the veracity of Scripture. Okay, nobody has perfect relationships. Okay, just did anyone watch the State of the Union address? I mean, I find it somewhat comical, you know, that these Democrats and Republicans are all in the same room and they're all shaking hands and loving the president. You know, probably under their breath, they're cursing one another. And it's just like, what is that? And in a more lighthearted example, we, we find that uh, there, speaking of the White House, there is a, a petition to the White House to deport Justin Bieber. Um, did you catch that? 100,000 signatures already in the book. So, so I mean, we just, we don't, we don't get along. You know what I'm saying? We don't really like one another. Um, and we see this play out in so many ways. Rationally, relationally, morally, we fail to reflect the pristine character God possesses. And so what's the moral of the story? Though made in the glorious image of God, we fail to reflect his glory. This is part two of the meta-narrative. The fall. Man rebelled against God in his glory, and the image has been distorted ever since. So, so though the image of God is not totally lost, okay, don't miss this, we retain the image of God in us after the fall, but this image is marred and defaced and distorted. If you've ever, like me, sad to admit, if you've ever dropped your cell phone and shattered your screen, this is kind of what it's like, okay? You can still see the images, it's still coming through, but it's distorted, it's hard to, to see. And this is how we imperfectly now reflect the image of our great God. But here's the good news. Here's the good news. The image of God can be recovered and restored through the true and greater Adam. All right? The image of God can be recovered and restored through the true and greater Adam. Laced through these words of great consequence, we're going to find words of hope and redemption. Look in verse 14 with me. Here are words of consequence to the serpent, the man, and the woman. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the fields. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. And to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain, you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. And don't miss this. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. So these tragic consequences that we see articulated in verses 14 through 19 actually have within them words of hope and grace and redemption. I mean, these, these consequences are grave, and they, they give us an impression of the offense against the holiness of God. I can tell you, the punishment does not even meet the crime. And, and if you resist that, it shows what a lack of understanding we have of the holiness of God, okay? I'm, I'm with you. I'm kind of like reading this, like, man, this is really heavy consequence, and, and it's because of the, the how he, uh, um, unimaginable is the holiness of our, of our great God. But even in the midst of these consequences, it says in verse 21, God 
clothed Adam and Eve. There was grace in the midst of consequence. And what is more, in verse 15, it speaks of a coming redeemer, okay? People call this the proto-euangelion. It's the first mention of the gospel, people would say, in all of scripture. It says to Satan, God is speaking to Satan, and he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So there is this, this, this offspring of the woman pointing to Christ who will have a, a battle with Satan and though Satan will, 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 will bruise his heel, it says, uh, I'm sorry, it says actually, um, yeah, yeah, that he will bruise his heel. It says that he will bruise his head, all right? So there's a, there's a clear distinction in who is winning out in this battle. It's one thing to get your heel nicked. It's another thing to get your head crushed, you know what I'm saying? And so Jesus comes on the scene to deal with the works of Satan. We see this play out in two major episodes, okay? The first is in Luke chapter four, where we find Jesus in the wilderness being tempted. And, and the genealogy in Luke, we, we studied this a while back. It's so, it's so uh, intentional because it, it traces Jesus' genealogy backwards from Joseph all the way to Adam, the son of God. And then in chapter four, it shows how that Jesus, when he's tempted by uh, Satan in the wilderness, and he's really hungry because he's fasted for 40 days, and Satan comes up and he says, hey, if you are the son of God, you see that doubt, you see that twisting of, of, of God's truth. He says, if you are the son of God, hey, why don't you command these stones to turn into bread? And so Jesus, unlike Adam, resists. He says, man did not live on bread alone, but lives by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And then when he's, when he's tempted to, to, in, in these other ways in the garden, Jesus re resists each temptation. And what is, it, what is he showing here? What is Luke showing here? How Jesus actually passes the test in the wilderness where Adam failed in the garden. So we find that Jesus is the true and greater Adam who has the ultimate victory over this serpent we know as Satan. And of course, the greatest victory Jesus has over Satan is in his work on the cross and in his resurrection when he deals with, with sin, Satan, death by triumphing over them through the cross and his resurrection. And so the meta narrative then continues. Not only do we see creation and fall, but we see redemption. Through the work of Christ, the image of God can be progressively recovered to reflect God's glory. All right, this is the, this is the good news. We saw the, the sin and the consequence in the early part of chapter three, but now because of this, this offspring of the woman, Jesus Christ, now we can have the image of God progressively recovered in us. Let me show you how this works. When someone places their faith in Jesus Christ and his work for us on the cross, the Bible says that God makes us new, all right? Our, our, our fallen natures uh, and the consequences of our sin, he gives us a new nature, a new heart. 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. And so what happens then when God makes us new, when he causes us to be reborn, is that then he begins to make us more and more like Jesus, all right? So, so this is the purpose of a Christian. We follow Christ. We are becoming more like him. And so uh, this is, this is what, when, we, when we look at... Uh, Colossians 1 and Hebrews 1, uh, it says that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. It says he is the uh, radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. Okay, so, so Jesus is the true image of God, the only perfect human to ever live. And so now we are being remade into the image of Christ, which means we are being remade into the image of God. So then Colossians 
Chapter three goes on to explain this, where it says, do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. And I love 2 Corinthians 3. Look at this. And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another, for this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Okay, do you, do you see all of this? Made in the image of God to reflect his glory. We have radically failed to reflect his glory, but when we get connected to Christ and Christ makes us new, now we have the capacity to image forth the glory of God again. And a Christian's life is one that is marked by this steady incline and maturity. Okay? It's not that we're perfect. It's not that we always reflect his glory. But now we have the capacity to increasingly reflect the glory of God with our lives because as we behold Christ, he changes us to make us more like himself. Oh, this is what you're experiencing in your Christian life. Jesus is the true and greater Adam who transforms our lives into the likeness of his glorious life. Romans 5, 12 through 21. We don't have time to look at uh, it this morning, but, but let me just set it up for you, and then you can go back this week and, and read it on your own, okay? The, the first Adam is contrasted with the true and greater Adam, all right? We, what we will see there is that it was through the disobedience of the first Adam that sin enters the world, but it's through the obedience of the second and greater Adam that now we can have life in him. The first Adam was unrighteous, morally impure. The second Adam was perfectly righteous and pure. The first Adam's act led to judgment and condemnation, but the act and obedience of the second Adam leads to our justification. The first Adam brought in, ushered in the reign of sin in our lives. But the second Adam, the true and greater Adam, ushers in the reign of God's grace. And most of all, the first Adam brought death. The second Adam brings life. So, so which, which Adam are you reflecting this morning? Some of you perhaps have never, have never embraced Christ as the greatest treasure and savior of your life. And so you are, you are still walking in disobedience to God. You've never come home to Christ. And so because of that, you are unrighteous under the condemnation of God. The reign of sin is at work in your life and you are headed to an everlasting and eternal death. So, so I want to plead with you, if that's you this morning, then look to Christ. Look to the true and greater Adam because it's through his obedience and his righteousness that he gives to us, he imputes to us that we are justified, counted righteous in God's sight. The reign of grace now marking our lives and we have life now and life forever. Can I get a little more than that? I mean, is that, you know what I'm saying? That's, this is incredible this is incredible truth. So thank you. So, 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 so don't miss this. Everyone, everyone is born into the first Adam, the death of the first Adam, but not everyone is reborn into the life of the second Adam. So the encouragement this morning, the point of the whole message is simply this. Escape the death we receive through the first Adam by finding life in the true and greater Adam. Creation, fall, redemption, and it actually keeps getting better than this. You, you, you aren't even ready for this, okay? We are heading toward a new creation. So much so that 1 Corinthians 15, verse 49 would say, just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. Now, what does this mean? It means this. If you are in Christ, 
You will one day spend all eternity with God and you will forever glorify God by displaying the image of Jesus. So the final part of the meta-narrative of Scripture is creation, fall, redemption, new creation. Through the work of Christ, the image of God will be completely restored to reflect the glory of God. This is what we have to look forward to. It is mind-boggling truth. So let me conclude with this. In Luke chapter 20, Jesus is encountering the religious leaders who wanted to take him out. They were trying to trap him in his words. And in this particular occasion, they wanted him to speak against the emperor so they could accuse him of treason against Rome. And so the, the, the religious leaders of the day, they come and ask him a question about taxes. And they say, Jesus, should we pay tribute to Caesar? And so as they try to trap him in his words, Jesus, who is wisdom itself, replies by saying this. He says, but he, it says, but he perceived their craftiness and said to them, show me a denarius, a coin, whose Whose likeness and inscription does it have? And they said, it has Caesar's likeness and inscription. So Jesus says to them, then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. It's important to know who we are, but it's more important to know whose we are. Your life was made in the very image and likeness of God. So give your life to him every single day and experience the blessing that comes from knowing God through Jesus, the true and greater Adam. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for these first few chapters of your word. And Lord, I know it's a lot to absorb this morning, but we just pray that this understanding of, of how you've made us in your image to reflect and represent your glory on earth, that it would really hit our hearts, that it would change how we view you, how we view one another, how we view ourselves. And Father, I pray that we would, that we would run to the cross, that we would run to Christ, that we would find our identity and our life in the true and greater Adam who gave himself for us that we might have life in him. Lord, I pray anyone that needs to make that decision, Lord, that they would do so today. They would find life and salvation in Christ. And Lord, I pray for all of us, Lord, that we would desire to reflect your glory and display your image in every conceivable way as you give us grace to live our lives for you. We pray all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen.